You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. It is uh, Legal Talk and Alhamdulillah Legal Talk uh, with our regular and uh, senior attorney Ashraf uh, Isop. When he joins us, uh, he adds, uh, you know, a lot of value to this uh, segment. And I always tell him, I said, Ashraf, you are the one that produces and directs and Alhamdulillah really adds uh, value to this uh, platform on uh, Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahlas Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Let me welcome uh, you, the uh, beloved listeners, and also Ashraf, uh, our senior attorney, Ashraf Isop, our day hearty. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Tell me, Ashraf, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm exceedingly well with the help of Allah. And as you mentioned, a fine evening, but exceedingly cold. I think that has to be included here in Johannesburg. The cold has set in. You feel it especially uh, after Fajr and definitely from Asr onwards, like, uh, you know, in the evenings, it's quite, it's not cool, it's cold. But we thank Allah for all the seasons because, you know, with each season comes its own cure. And with for each cure, Obviously, there is an underlying disease. So, you know, uh, even the earth, the microbes, etc., etc., all have to be killed off and then they rejuvenate in the spring. So, in a way, we're lucky here in Johannesburg. We really feel the winter. You know, it's it's not a it's not a winter to be uh, just taken for granted. In many aspects, it is quite enjoyable. So, alhamdulillah for all of those things. How are you doing down there, Shafat? Well, I tell you, uh, Ashraf, uh, I simply love the heat uh, when it comes to this part of the world. One thing I don't like here is the mosquitoes, which, uh, you know, is, uh, I mean, my uh, doctor yesterday on my medical files uh, told me, your mosquitoes are mutant or, you know, they just immune, uh, immunized and they just can't, you can't put them away. Then tell mosquitoes are absolutely like uh, armor proof. But I was in uh, Joburg for the uh, past few days there, stayed the three days, and I slept, Ashraf. I slept like I never slept anywhere because I, as soon as I landed, I went and I slept. And I went, um, uh, visited, and I slept again. And he told me, yes, sir, you went into hibernation mode because the cold of Johannesburg gives you that cozy. But it was a beautiful sleep. And as you said, uh, Johannesburg is like none other, even the morning when you get up there, you feel it's different. But there is something about the high felt compared, oh, I call you the gold reef compared to what I call the coral reef. So <laughs> you guys on the gold reef, perhaps um, when it comes to your physiology, uh, when it comes to your maybe your mentality, uh, your sur- surroundings definitely gets affected by that, Ashraf. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think obviously, you know, your your geography makes a big difference. In fact, it was a study or an opinion that um, here in the southern part of Africa and more towards the equator, the sun actually has the effect on your psychology as well as your as your physiology, as you say. And some says uh, the African sun makes you lazy. So there could be some truth in that. I don't know. But uh, definitely I can tell you in this cold, if you catch a bit of the winter sun at the right moment, 
it definitely puts you off to sleep, Shaba, and you've experienced it. So Alhamdulillah, yeah, all, all good with that. So, Alhamdulillah, and you know, uh, I, I don't know, and uh, the, the, the feeling of when I go to Cape Town and to Johannesburg, oh, I mean, KZN is a so-called home, but I do feel so comfortable in uh, both the Cape and uh, the Kauteng region. I don't know, the love is so efficacious and uh, even you and I, I mean, we can be different problems and all, but the love is there and it's uh, the common thread of uh, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah, that uh, keeps us together, Ashraf. Uh, how would you, as a spiritual man, how would you uh, uh, describe that scenario? No, no doubt. Even the Cape has got its own magic. Uh, Durban has got its own attraction, especially the Cape, because, you know, there's so much of history steeped in there um, with the early Muslims uh, coming from Batavia and being incarcerated by the Dutch East India Company um, on Robben Island, you know, because they were political opponents of the Dutch. And uh, now, many, many generations later, we still benefit by their dust and by their presence. I mean, it has created a whole new community in the Cape. And, you know, the community not to be snuffed at, uh, they, they're quite, uh, quite away in many, many respects. But on a geographical level, you know, you can see the attraction that the Cape has. Of course, KwaZulu-Natal has got its own set of uh, beauties. I mean, the beaches, I don't know now, but at one stage it was the blue flag beaches of the world, the finest beaches. And, uh, you know, the language, the cuisine, it's all that, but it's, it's a, it's a mix-up. So you enjoy being in different parts of the, of the Republic. Uh, and the most amazing thing is wherever you go now, even in far outlying areas, you'd be very surprised to see little mosques or Jamaat Khanas or little communities. So the Ummah is spread far and wide in this uh, Republic, Shafat. It's very interesting. You know, see no, the Khoisan has yeah, uh, taken, taken on Islam in a big way. Mm. I noticed that, and uh, my very close uh, buddy, uh, our member of parliament, Ahmad Mansur Sheikh Imam, uh, I think he made an honorary chief of the Khoisans. But uh, one thing he told me that there's so much of infighting amongst them, and uh, perhaps uh, that is, you know, not holding them in good stead. Uh, what's your thoughts, Ashra? Uh, that is, seems to be the bane and the destruction of every community is when there is uh, fitna, you know. I think uh, we've seen the results of that. Uh, infighting leads to disunity, leads to loss of opportunity. I'm doing a matter in the land claims court at present. And even before we reach the point of compensation, the families are already fighting internally as to who must do what. And I said to them, look, if you don't approach it with a united front, you're gonna, you, you know, you're gonna lose all of your benefits. Uh, and I hope that that has made an impact and got them talking. With, you know, with, with, with any tribe uh, or, or any community, Shafat, what I found is that where there's a lack of, uh, let's say, central authority, a chief or an amir, then chaos ensues because, you know, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not guided by a central leadership. So, like they say, um, 
uh, too many Indians and no chiefs, you see. So I hope they, they're able to sort those uh, difficulties out because they, they scored a, a victory in the Constitutional Court uh, a couple of days ago. I must say I'm not going to go into that case because I don't know what it meant uh, for them, but I understood that certain parts of certain acts uh, were found to be unconstitutional and therefore set aside. So I hope that they get the house in order sooner than later. Yeah, you make a valid point there indeed. And uh, another point uh, that uh, MP told me was when you in you know in Parliament and then they look at you and especially said many the smaller parties come up and you know and talk and say oh yeah you know Muslim or sometimes the bigger party comes up to and says you know can you give us some contacts some Muslim businessmen you people seem to have all the money and so forth and then he said same with the Koi people I mean looking at him as a Muslim and he said he's been he's done a lot of work with them. He didn't over brag about it, but he said then they found that uh, these individuals keep on asking you over and over, uh, you know, not putting the, uh, you know, the, the shoulders to the wheel. Uh, what's your thoughts on that, Ashraf? Yeah, Shafat, I, you know, the answer is in the question, you know, you've got to put the shoulder to the wheel. Um, it's as simple as that. And <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you heard it, people. You heard Ashraf again. I don't know, get into linguistic gymnastics and give you the masala of why they don't do this and don't do that. I mean, perhaps, uh, you know, there were once again the colonists. I mean, what they had done to these people, paying them for the hard work that they did with a bottle of wine, uh, Ashraf. It still exists today, you know. There's a huge incident of, um, of uh, in utero alcohol syndrome which means that the baby is already poisoned with alcohol and um, in all likelihood will, will, be grow, will be born with that uh, terrible, you know, I would call it not a disease, but a deformity because it's already in the cells, you know. And so the, the whole life cycle carries on. They become alcoholics. Unfortunately, in parts of the Cape, they still paid in wine uh, for their labor. And uh, I mean, it can, has terrible effects on, on people. There was um, a very good documentary on the Aborigines of New Zealand uh, called Once Were Warriors Too. And you can take any native population, uh, North America, the Khoisan, uh, and as soon as they exposed to alcoholism and alcoholics, uh, uh, alcohol, they become completely shattered. And it's a very, very difficult syndrome to try and reverse. But that is now part of uh, the unfortunate reality of, uh, of so much of how business operates in this country. So you get paid in wine. Obviously, you're going to drink the wine. You're not going to make grape juice out of it. And uh, you become de dependent on it, and it becomes your solace. So, yeah, it's a vicious circle, uh, Shafat. No, absolutely, Ashraf. And, uh, you know, I recall uh, you sending me a clip, which I found very interesting of the history of the Dutch Reformed Church. And, uh, you know, amazing. This was like whites on, upon whites. And uh, perhaps you could, uh, you know, give the listeners a short lesson on that. And it's, uh, perhaps they will get to know 
that even the apartheid the time, the Boer, the Boers uh, didn't have it easy, Ashraf. Yeah, look, uh, apartheid was never the creation of the Africana. I mean, we have to go historically into it. Um, when the Dutch East India Company came, uh, they established a, uh, a, you know, the fort in Cape Town. And everything beyond the fort was uh, still to be conquered. Uh, later on, when the Dutch were pushed out by the English, in fact, now, you know, it was interesting that you mentioned that because they, they speak of the advent of the Dutch Reformed Church, which was uh, the combination between the Anglicans and Lutherans. And uh, these people had fled the Catholic Church of Europe. And, and then they came and they um, formed the NGK, Never uh, Held uh, uh, NGK Gereformerierde Kerk. Nationale, yeah. So, you know, they were fleeing their own Christian on Christian violence or differences and then came here and then uh, uh, united and then continued conquering. Uh, there was a very interesting study done years ago. I don't know if it's still available. Uh, and it went by the title, The Role of Missionaries in Conquest. So... You know, they, uh, I mean, the church then and now was a very, very powerful enterprise. You can call it an enterprise. And, um, yeah, they had resources with them. And they had people willing to come and go into the frontiers and, uh, you know, tame the, the native population. So some say here in... Uh, in, in the southern tip, uh, they came with a gun in one hand and the Bible in the other. But of course, when you say the Afrikaners were equally affected, they fled the British prosecution. And they went as far away as possible from the British in the, uh, in the Cape. And of course, you know, the British followed. And they got into KwaZulu-Natal and they got into the Transvaal and it culminated in two massive wars the um, the uh, Boer War of uh, 19 or of the 1890s, and then you know it culminated 1899. They had already incarcerated the Boers uh, in concentration camps and started the Scorch Earth policy. So when you say that they were victims of apartheid, sure, but it wasn't racially based apartheid. It was some other apartheid. Obviously, it was um, the you know the, the British trying to get as much land as possible, uh, and you'll recall that when gold was discovered under the Vatvarsrand, uh, Paul Kruger passed the Eight Landers Act, where he, he forbid foreigners from owning any kind of gold reserves or gold mines, uh, because he knew that the resources would be plundered. So. We know that our history then proceeds with the Union of 1910, and they had Bian Smuts and General Louis Porter and all in the early government. And then you had the First World War, and then you had the Second World War, but, um, you know, preceding the Republic status in 1961, there was um, all kinds of laws um, that... Uh, that, that militated against Afrikaners' dominance as well. 
you know, of the Jameson raids, you know, of so many incidences, and ultimately the Afrikaners had to give in. But make no mistake that the father of uh, apartheid uh, was definitely the British. It wasn't the Afrikaner creation. Uh, in fact, the Afrikaner wouldn't have survived without the the assistance of the black worker uh, to cross all those mountains, um, you know, from the Cape. Uh, I mean, they worked as an entire team. So you find very little evidence, I would suggest, that uh, there was direct racism between the Afrikaner and the, and the black men that assisted him to come over those treacherous mountains and go far away from the British as possible. But as we know, the empire never set. Uh, the British came here. They brought the Indians from India because they wanted to uh, get this huge crop of sugarcane going. And the Indians seemed to have the necessary skill. Of course, some Chinese as well. And, uh, you know, for, for, to feed the enterprise. And then the, they, they found that to subdue the uh, great uh, Zulu warriors as well. Uh, and there you see the genius of Shaka Zulu in some of the, uh, the, the wars that were, were fought. And then the famous battle of Isildunwana in the um, KZN region. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. The uh, Afrikaners were equally victim to oppression and uh, uh, iniquity. You know, you make a very valid point there indeed, where they, uh, you know, they had these alliances uh, with the, the different Zulu tribes and uh, so forth. And uh, the Afrikaners, uh, you know, they had a way of dealing with people. And uh, as you said, there was a genocide perpetrated on them by the Britishers. And uh, then you talk about the different battles they had. They had already bloody battles even uh, with the Zulus and so forth. But uh, we move on, uh, Ashraf, and I want to talk to, about, to you about that lovely clip you sent me where it says, uh, you know, Jews cannot take interest from each other. And, you know, these are the people that uh, rule the banking system of the world, and usury is uh, the way of living. Talk to us, Ashraf. So that was interesting because they actually used the word riba, which is the exact term used by, uh, by the Muslims, riba. I mean, it is a Quranic term, in fact. So what I had, you know, proposed always that um, the, the, the original teachings of Judaism was corrupted um, because they, they created a distinction between Jew and non-Jew. So the root of riba actually is uh, common in all um, three monastic faiths. By that I mean that we know that um, riba was totally outlawed by the Rasulullah. In fact, I mean, the, if you look at the last sermon, it's amazing when you when you read it again because it it it, it contained like a universal declaration of uh, of rights. But in that clip, it was very clear that the rabbi, I think he was uh, from, I think he was, I think he was a Spanish rabbi, but he, he actually speaks of the law. The law of Moses is that there is no riba, there cannot be interest between Jew and Jew. But you see how cleverly it was then changed 
They said, except in a business transaction, for example, a bank. Now, banks never existed for time eternity. It only started in 1673 uh, with the uh, uh, Bank of England, which still exists until today. Um, so what I'm saying to you at the core, it was forbidden because you, you must understand what it really means is that you can't use the oppression of capital or the oppression of money uh, uh, to burden somebody else because you had to raise people and not make loans prohibitive. So you give a loan, but you because you had the control of money, you added a percentage to it that you took back even without any labor, without any effort. Then we know that in um, the Christian world, particularly the Catholics, but they came later, but the root of uh, the prohibition against riba was fought by Sedna Isa with his own hands when he threw the money lenders out of the inner temple and uh, called them uh, uh, thieves. And obviously he knew the law because he was, a, he was a Jew by birth and by training, a rabbi. Um, so he understood the, the, the prohibition. And then down the line, you come to the final Khatam and Nabi'in, uh, who came with the, the book of laws and instructions from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and he made it completely and utterly uh, despicable, and a war was declared. So what I'm saying to you, each of the great religions identified the particular evil of money being used as a tool of oppression against those that did not have. Um, and so, you know, that still exists today. Um, whichever, whichever country you look at uh, is steeped in debt. You know, if you're following the debt ceiling review in the US, it could be a, a game changer for the rest of the world because they're unable to pay the interest. So, so uh, if you look at the ticker tape in New York City, uh, regarding how much debt that the U.S. has foisted on each of his citizens' head. It's astonishing. I think Joseph Stilgitz from the World Bank uh, calculated it will take something like 500 years to pay off the debt. If you had to pay the debt at a million rand every minute, it will take something like 500 years to pay the U.S. national debt which is made up largely by interest payments. Uh, I hope that's just giving you a glimpse into how atrocious this thing is and why it was divinely prohibited, not just for us, although we were given the responsibility of fighting against it because Allah has declared a war and you can't be on the side of the losers. You have to be on the side of Allah and the Rasul who, who have declared war on it, you see. Very sophisticated, yeah. very deep topic, but that's the genesis of it. Yeah, you know, beautiful indeed, Ashraf. And, uh, you know, we should be fighting oppression and, uh, you know, uh, uh, bringing in goodness and so forth. But it so happened uh, that, uh, you know, perhaps uh, that Henry Kissinger ushered in uh, this world of misery when he uh, went into the petrodollar syndrome. And now you find that the, uh, you know, paranoid capitalist of uh, Europe or the bankers of Europe hell-bent on uh, bringing in another currency. It's going to be 
um, uh, they say, a, a Bitcoin like none other. What are they talking about, Ashraf? So I think all central banks are preparing for a cryptocurrency of one form or the other. It's inevitable and irreversible. However, it's not backed by anything. Like gold is there in a physical form. And we know that by 1973, Nixon had released what he said was a temporary release of the dollar from the gold standard because the gold, so, so the paper money had to be backed by a physical asset such as gold, which had three or four properties. It was unique, it was historical, it was indestructible, it couldn't be just created, and it had a limited supply. And then that is the bimetal currency that you'll find exactly in the Quran, uh, gold and silver. So for all those reasons, you know, money was limited and therefore you didn't have hyperinflation, hyperspending. I mean, today the dollar is simply printed from a printing press by the Federal Reserve. Now, you move to the BRICS currency and you have the same scenario, few people controlling a particular currency. And then you move to a digital currency and now you're moving to digital money or cryptos. Uh, it, it's mined, it's created out of nothing through a computer program that enjoys a blockchain security from around the world uh, so that you can't duplicate, you can't destroy its source because it's stored in so many different uh, computers around the world. But it is uh, just another fantasy because it's not linked to anything. And the, and the difficulty with any currency is that when it's not linked to anything, anyone can control it and anyone can put a price to it. I mean, no one can explain why the Bitcoin is uh, 23,000 US dollars to a Bitcoin. You know, and, and, and when the wallet goes or the cryptocurrency goes or the crypto exchange goes, billions are wiped out. I mean, where is it? How is it that we believe in something that's not even there? So, yeah, I think there's big challenges coming, but it is the reality that, that each of the reserve banks, which is the monetary authority of every country, is looking at the inevitable, which is going to be a digital currency. I mean, already people are paying for purchases through their cell phones, Shafat. There's no longer cash even exchanging. So it just means an impulse between two computers for goods. You know, Ashraf, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, topic, but it is a t uh, topic uh, that he, uh, tells us that mankind is being manipulated uh, by a group uh, that is laughing and sniggering at them, a group that says, no, these are sheeples, let's uh, run a racket with them and we can't do anything with them. And, you know, if this carries on, uh, if you don't subscribe uh, to the type of system and what they are doing, and, you know, uh, uh, very soon they'll have all world governments uh, subscribing to their form of a currency or digital format and so forth, uh, they can monitor each individual. And if you are not compliant to their whims and fancies or to their value system, I don't know what type of value system they have, then uh, they can switch you off and block you off. You can't go and buy food, you can't go and buy uh, or pay your electricity bill, or you can't go and uh, you know, do anything. They'll just switch you off. You become a non-entity. Uh, I mean, uh, they make your life uh, hell on earth, Ashraf. Yeah, I think the digital human being is already there. Um, it's inescapable. I mean, the only way 
is to get off the digital roundabout. And that means a complete withdrawal from the society that we know and we exist in. It means starting over. Maybe according to the Hadith, on the top of a hill with a few sheep is where you'll be safe. Um, one has to choose, you know, Shafat, you can't be on the merry-go-round and wanting to go off, but not wanting it to slow down. So like, we're all going headlong into it. But, uh, you know, nothing lasts forever. Every empire was brought down, despite what they said. Um, the peacock throne of the Iranian Shah, they said going to be for a thousand years. The Roman Empire crashed. The British Empire crashed. The Chinese Empire crashed. At the end of the day, everything has got a limited shelf life including the lofty buildings that we're putting up, it all returned to dust. You know, it's, nothing is in a, indestructible or, or forever, Shabha. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing lasts forever. And as you said, uh, many empires have uh, literally hit the dust or bit the dust. And uh, that will uh, happen. But you know what worries me, Ashraf? Perhaps you can give me some sakunia. What worries me, I mean, every move that we make, the type of food that we eat is compromised with some derivative uh, uh, from, a, you know, from, a, uh, from, from pork. Yeah, they got something in there, your chocolates, and they got in this, the toothbrush you use, and so forth. And we don't have the time to check whether that uh, bristles on that thing is from a sewer flesh, and oh, Allahu alam. And then uh, you look at uh, the uh, riba system that we're doing, and so so forth. And when we're making that ibadat, I don't know. How will we be judged, Ashraf? Does that, you know, sometimes that irks me so much. I don't know what to think. How would you react, Ashraf? So I think that's um, a good starting point, Shafat, because the first part of, uh, of your seeking forgiveness is knowing that you have sinned. Now, Allah subhanahu wa knows why the condition is what it is today. But it's also our test to see how we can do, stand up against it. For some people or many people um, that are completely unaware of these things, then life continues. For those that are aware, it's a challenge. But the same challenge exists throughout time, which is that you have to fight falsehood with truth. I think that's all you're called upon to do, is to stand uh, strong with the truth in your hand and irrespective of what the condition is. So I think a person, as you know, is judged by the intention and intention leads to action. Rather that than to be a willing participant in a completely false um, setup. Worse still is to call that false setup Islamic. For example, you have Islamic bank, insurance, etc. Islamic traded funds, Islamic uh, crypto, Islamic medical aid, Islamic insurance. I mean, you might as well call it Islamic wine and Islamic pork. I mean, why do they want to put this, this label Islamic? It's almost how the reformists, um, you know, the, put, put their labels that uh, they broke away from the Catholic Church, but uh, they still reformist uh, Christians. It, it's completely nonsensical. 
Yeah, so we have those challenges, um, mm. and and I think a big part of it is the lack of uh, education. Unfortunately, that lack of, lack of education cuts across all all parts of society. Yeah, funny when it comes to that dollar. They say, hey, I know the smell of a dollar. Hey, this is the no new new one. The color is right, and this is right. Hey, some people can mm-hmm. smell a dollar. But uh, moving on, Ashraf, and uh, maybe a uh, good news uh, topic where uh, Recep uh, Erdogan, I mean, uh, with all the opposition from the uh, media, uh, mainstream media of the West and uh, uh, some people in his country, especially the youth, uh, he withstood the storm and he came through. And, you know, not only uh, uh, most of the population in Turkey were happy, but uh, the Muslim world in general embraced and celebrated his uh, winning. Uh, your thoughts, Ashraf? Yeah, that's a difficulty I have, Shafak. On the one hand, we reject um, everything that is supposed to be outside uh, the pattern shown. On the other hand, we say there was a great democratic election. 52% of the entire Turkish population voted for him. That is not how things are. First of all, nationalism and the antithesis. Secondly, national elections. You know, where mm. you're supposed to be, where, where do you get the idea that you're supposed to be voting for a leader? Mm. You see the irony in what I'm saying, Shafa. Thirdly, it's not like a seismic event. I, I, you know, I have to interject here. It's not an irony. You hit me below the belt. I'm down. Give me time to get up now. Right, carry on. <laughs> you can, yeah, it's not a seismic that, event that he... Yeah, it, it is such a valid point. I mean, the caliphs never even put themselves up for election. You know, Abu Bakr and Umar and uh, Osman and Radial Anhum. I mean, they, they were chosen by the people. They didn't go say, vote me, vote me. Go ahead, Ashraf. Yeah, so I'm saying it's not a seismic event. He didn't like forgive the the debt overnight of every citizen. He, you know what I'm saying. He's what change? What cha- change did it bring? Um, mm. You know, people look up. Oh, he gave the azan in Hafiz al Quran, and he read this. And no, man, we, we have to find. That's what I'm saying, Shabbat. Education starts at the highest level. So we have to pre- we have to stop pretending that we fit in and we don't fit in. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, it doesn't mean that the Turkish lira is now independent of the rest of the world's currencies. He's still got a, a national debt. He still uh, give housing loans on debt. So what's changed? The same thing with the so-called Islamic Republic of Iran. People are in debt. They say Islamic Republic or Islamic Republic of Afghanistan or Pakistan. In fact, I think Pakistan has to change its name to Napakistan, Napak, because, I mean, they, <laughs> they really, again, they yeah, say I know. Imran Khan is the savior and this and that. I mean, this was the orphan child of the British Empire. It, it, it was created by uh, a Ismaili, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who couldn't even read Alhamdu at the, at the opening ceremony. So you can see the chaos that is there, Shafat. What I'm saying, 
You see, we can't be between and betwixt, right? We have to choose now where you want to be. You can't say, oh, look, what a wonderful national election. National election, what does it mean? Anyway, that's, I mean, I, we can't control the events of the world in that, uh, in that manner. Whatever the Turks decide. I'm not going to let you, uh, yeah, I'm not going to let you get off the hook there. I want to know from you, how do we get caught up in this emotional, you know, web of, you know, sentimental Muslims? How, how, how? Are we being, you know, I don't know, played at, played for, by whom? Tell me, Ashraf. No, I think we mustn't uh, give credit to outside forces, Shavad. I think we, we must take we must take uh, responsibility for our own inaction and wanton ignorance. Um, I read somewhere, you know, we inside we enjoy our servitude so much, Shavad, so much. Uh, you know, we deep into consumerism and capitalism, and we, we love it. You know, all the trappings of capitalism. The, you can see our societies. Is controlled by that, you know, the, this car and, you know, that watch and uh, where they ate, uh, you know, it's just a society completely out of sync with Fitra. Fitra is not about those events. Fitra is about justice. Fitra is about, uh, like the Khalif said, Na Umar, walking around at night, looking at the condition of your people. Um, Fitra is ensuring that... Uh, uh, it, no person is, is left uh, starving. I mean, it was shocking that uh, uh, food harvest or African harvest, the NGO, said that this country throws something like 10.2 billion tons of food away per annum. How is it that in a country with such inequities, food can be thrown away? And then he, he brought down the, the analysis to uh, that the uh, farmer used to get 32%, he's now compressed to 18%. On the other end of the scale is the consumer, where he was paying 10 rand for bread, he's now paying 14 rand. So he's squeezed. So who's making the money in between? Well, there's very large capitalists that are listed on the stock exchange that you and I frequent daily for our needs. So. Nobody has decided that, look, you know what, food security is important. Let us start a, um, let us start a food fund. You know, let us start being self-sufficient. Let us, so what I'm saying is, Shafat, we're quite willing to play the role in this, in this whole thing, you know. But when it comes to issues of zakat and riba, then we say, no, no, no. Uh, you know what, we, we must be led by a particular group. Very convenient for us to, to move away from the real issues. So I can't blame anyone else but the individual, Shabbat. It, it is your own personal responsibility. You know, we can't say we're a Jamaat and we do things in Jamaat. And uh, on the other hand, when, 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 they, when, when you are given a responsibility, you say, oh, no, no, no. Uh, I, I don't belong to that Jamaat anymore. Sad indeed, Ashraf. A reality check is uh, needed. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us all. Well, Ashraf, uh, moving on. And our topic uh, this evening, the Bill of uh, Rights uh, in the, the Constitution. And uh, we all ears, uh, uh, our senior attorney, Ashraf Yusuf. Bismillah. 
So, Shafat, interestingly, and I don't know how many people have actually read the Constitution. It's a massive Constitution. But if you take the trouble to read it, you'll be surprised to find how much you can gain from it. Let me start by just analyzing the language clause, clause six of the Constitution. So we all know there's 11 languages, right? Official languages. But did you know that there is in section six sub five, uh, it's amazing when it says, there must be a pan-African language board established by national legislation, which must promote, create conditions and develop the use of one, all official languages. Two, we spoke of the Khoi, the Nama and the Sun, the San, you know, the clicks. And three, sign language. Mm. Then five sub B says, quite interestingly, Look what it says, is promote and ensure respect for all languages commonly used by communities in South Africa, including German, Greek, Gujarati, Hindi, Portuguese, Tamil, Telugu, and Urdu. And in 5b sub 2, Arabic, Hebrew, Sanskrit, and other languages used for religious purposes. So you can see that there is a protection for all of the languages that we might be close to, which is Urdu and Arabic. It's built into the constitution. And they must promote, create conditions and development. Can you imagine that? And then promote and ensure respect for the other languages. I think that is a clause that many might have missed. Back to our opening statement regarding the Bill of Rights, these are set out in what we call Chapter 2 of the Constitution. And the Bill of Rights span between Section 7 and 39. It's interesting when it says that the Bill of Rights is a constitution, is the cornerstone of, the, of a democracy in South Africa. It says it enshrines the rights of all people in our country and affirms the democratic values of human dignity, equality and freedom. Uh, you remember the French Revolution, right? Liberté. Um, it was liberty, liberty fraternity, fraternity, or death. And, and death, yes. or death. yeah. Uh, so, liberty, fraternity, or death. Uh, and we have dignity, equality, and freedom. But in 7.2, it says that the state must respect, promote, and fulfill all the rights in the Bill of Rights, very important. That is a uh, obligation created on the state. Of course, not all bill or not all rights are limited. They are limited by Section 36, what we call the limitation clause. But interesting, it says now, <clears throat> this Bill of Rights in, in, in uh, Section 8, it says it applies to all law. It binds the legislature executive, the judiciary, and all organs of state. So you can see that you can insist that the Bill of Rights applies to everyone. And it applies to natural and juristic persons. And it, you know, it says when applying the Bill of Rights to a natural person, a court must 
apply if necessary to develop the common law to the extent the legislation does not give effect to that right. So you can see that it's not limited to to the common law. You know, if the judges can always decide that we developing the common law in terms of the Bill of Rights. Um, so your, your first Bill of Rights, uh, the first right I think that people must uh, take note of is the Section 9, which is the Equality Clause. It says everyone is equal before the law and their right to equal protection and benefits of the law. Equality includes the enjoyment of all rights and freedoms. And to promote equality, legislative and other means must be designed to protect or advance persons or categories of disadvantaged persons uh, by unfair discrimination. Importantly, 9.3 says the state may not unfairly discriminate directly or indirectly against anyone. And these are the grounds, Shafat. Race, gender, sex, pregnancy, marital status, ethnic or social origin, color, sexual orientation, age, disability, religion, very important, conscience, conscience, belief, culture, language, and birth. Now, remember, in terms of the equality clause, there was a recent discussion on the number of Christian holidays uh, that are on the official calendar. Those are religious holidays, which includes uh, Christmas and Easter. And the whole country goes on a holiday. You don't get the same benefits for Diwali, Eid, or whatever else is celebrated. So there's a possible violation of the equality clause based on religion. Because on Eid's day, you're not obliged to close. You know, your, your, your shop will remain open. But on Easter and Christmas, well, your shop just happens to close, and you're quite happy with that for your business. So you can see that there are challenges against how the equality clause applies. And it says, you know, you may not be discriminated against um, based on the subsections above and national legislation must be enacted to prevent, fair, uh, prevent unfair discrimination. Um, very importantly, section 10. This is a massive clause. Everyone has inherent dignity and the right to have the dignity respected and protected. Let me give you two very important examples of how human dignity is, has been protected. Some time ago, there were terrible cartoons that was going to appear in a Sunday newspaper. At that time, uh, Judge Muhammad Jazbai Rahimullah uh, was in charge of the urgent bench in Johannesburg. An application was brought to prevent the newspaper from replicating these cartoons that emanated overseas that were obviously a direct insult to the Prophet The judge used the human rights clause in the Bill of Rights to say 
that the dignity of the Prophet would be impugned by allowing such a publication to go ahead. So you can see very imaginative application of that. And I think this was the only uniquely, only judgment in the world that prohibited the publication of the defamatory material based on the dignity clause in the constitution. Another example is, uh, which is now developing into a very interesting area of law, which is the right to um, Islamic marriages. Now, what it says is, you know, Islamic marriages were not recognized because in terms of the Roman law, they were potentially polygamous and therefore uh, inherently against um, the uh, Christian Judeo state or the ethos. And now one is beginning to see that the right to marriage is an aspect of the right to dignity and the right of uh, cohabitation is an aspect of the right to marriage. So marriage itself is not protected in the constitution, but the right to dignity is. And so now the courts are saying that you can't unfairly discriminate against the second or third Muslim wife uh, based on, uh, on the fact that they all enjoy dignity as wives married according to uh, the Islamic law. Uh, Home Affairs has gone a little way towards addressing this. They've trained 110 or 160 Islamic marriage officers who have the power to conduct the nikah and issue a uh, civil marriage certificate, albeit that the marriage ceremony was based on the, uh, on the nikah. So you can see that there is some uh, development there, you see, Shabbat. Importantly, everyone has the right to life under Section 11. Freedom and security of person is covered under Section 12, and I think 12.1a is important, not to be deprived of freedom arbitrarily or without just cause. So, you know, sometimes you are stopped and held at a police station for 48 hours. Well, 48 hours is the benchmark. After that, you have to be freed. But if you're deprived of your freedom arbitrarily, well, that is in violation of the Constitution. Not to be detained without trial. That means there must be a trial date set. You can't be just held in indefinite detention. Uh, important, free from forms of violence from either public or private sources. Um, not to be tortured in any way and not to be treated or punished in a cruel, inhumane or degrading way. This is just the freedom of the person. Now comes mental freedom, Shafat. Again, very important. 12.2, uh, and here's what it says. Everyone has a right to bodily and psychological integrity. You know, this means your mental state, right? And include the right to make decisions concerning reproduction, security and control over their body, and not to be subjected to medical or scientific experiments without the informed consent. What does this refer to, Shafat? Medical and scientific experiments. You remember the drugs mm. in the COVID period? Yes. These mm -hmm. experimental drugs. And you had to sign. So 
Is this a violation without your informed consent? You were told that if you don't take this, this is what's going to happen. Um, certain people took this to the labor court and they actually won based on the fact that they were not giving the informed consent. Very interesting. Again, what I'm doing, Shafat, I'm just tipping, tipping our toes into a massive set of rights that we enjoy in the Bill mm -hmm. of Rights. Why I'm saying this is because I believe that we might be ignorant of these rights. And if you're ignorant of these rights, you can't access the rights. You remember on our previous show, we did the right to a safe environment. Very important. Uh, but, you know, you didn't know about the rights, so you, you never really accessed the rights. Section 13 deeds with slavery, servitude, and forced labor. I think that's self-explanatory. You can't be locked up working in excess of the 40-hour week um, in, in, a, in, a, in a factory or somewhere. And this has happened in Indonesia and other areas. Uh, people were locked up for long periods. The factory caught on fire and they were killed. And uh, obviously this is now forced labor. Privacy, right? Important. This right includes not to have their person or home searched. Their property searched. Now property can include your car. You know, often uh, you'll be traveling and the guy says, okay, I want to search you or your... No, that's a violation of mm. your right to privacy. But at that moment, you have to give in to the authority of uh, the man with the badge, you see. Um, their possession seized. Here, very, very important, Shafat. Privacy of their communications infringed. Do you know now the SAPs, South African Police Services, have actually got the go-ahead to buy various kinds of grabbers Grabbers are those kinds of uh, machines that can uh, locate your cell phone and grab the information or the conversation you're having. There's a toss-up between the privacy clause and the right of the police to gather information using not covert but overt listening devices, which obviously has to have the permission of a judge. but this is it. You have to be aware of it. There's a lot of rumors that your phones are listening to you, you know. And people say, hey, we're just talking about burgers and suddenly the ad popped up. Well, <laughs> it could be that your right to privacy has been infringed. You can see where this thing is going, Shafat. Huge, huge legal challenges. Freedom of religion, belief I... and opinion. Yes, Shafat. You know, I, I mean, you gave us a whole... Uh you know, a whole menu of uh, uh, thoughts here and, uh, you know, the rights of, uh, but as you said, you know, the, the, the point you made is when you get to a roadblock or a man with the badge, and if you are difficult, they make your life even more difficult. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you find the wrong man who has the badge, but he's a criminal. And today you get cars that are even, uh, you know, uh, have these ide identification of police cars and policemen and so forth. But these are criminals. I mean, we are. I mean, the constitution is absolutely, you know, foolproof. But what do you do? You've got a lot of challenges, Ashraf. You know, we're running out of time. But I'm going to give you uh, two minutes uh, 
So think about that and uh, perhaps a roundup. And maybe we need to do part two on uh, on, on on the same topic, uh, Ashraf. Our you know beautiful topic indeed, the Bill of Rights uh, in the Constitution. Maybe in a fortnight time uh, we will come up with uh, part two, Ashraf. Yeah, I think it's important because there are really important uh, rights in the Bill of Rights that people must understand, like for freedom of religion, belief, and opinion uh, in uh, Section 15, freedom of expression, 16, uh, assembly, demonstration, picket, and petition, uh, 17, freedom of association, in 18, political rights, in 19. You know, now that you can be an um, a independent candidate, and this is important, very important. Section 20, no citizen may be deprived of citizenship. You see this over and over and over. 21, freedom of movement and residence. Now, I just want to pause here to quickly add, when the Constitution uses the word everyone, as it does in 21.1 and 21.2, it means everyone, including foreigners. When it speaks of every citizen in 21.3 and 21.4, it means specifically to the citizen. It says here, every citizen has a right to enter, remain, and reside anywhere in the Republic, and every citizen has a right to a passport. Do you know how many citizens have been deprived of their passports? How many citizens have been deprived of the right to enter and remain and reside in the um, anywhere in the Republic? Interesting question, whether you can go and reside in Orania and you'll be prevented from doing so. But again, freedom of trade, occupation, profession. You know, the number of young graduates from overseas universities that were prevented from taking up uh, their profession and um, even, even their practice may be regulated by law, but it can't be uh, based on inequality. So, Shafat, I'm with you. Massive, massive topic, definitely worth a revisit. We've run out of time. No, Alhamdulillah, bless you for that, Ashraf. As I said, when you come on to uh, your segment, uh, it's absolutely, you know, a bliss for me, bliss, you know, and plus uh, giving us uh, so much uh, more. And Allah bless you for that. Uh, you, uh, inshallah, you'll be in my duas as always. And inshallah, pray for me as I pray for you, Ashraf. Amin. That's all we can say on this beautiful evening. We pray for each other. That is the best you can do is to make dua for somebody else. Yes, our Ashraf, uh, senior attorney Ashraf Isub there, and Alhamdulillah, it just seemed to have lost him in the haze there, but Alhamdulillah, Allah bless him, Allah keep him. He will locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming, and uh, next up will be the Ish, uh, yeah, the Isha Azan, and Inshallah, we'll be continuing with truthful news after that. <laughs>